Hello and welcome to another episode of That CI Podcast, That Creative Industries Podcast. My name is Ash, I'm your host, and today I am chatting with David Ardity, a musician and associate professor of sociology with the University of Texas. Uh, we'll be chatting about his upcoming project, a book called The Ideology of Getting Signed. David is also the author of two other books, I Take Over, The Recording Industry in the Digital Era, and Criminalizing Independent Music. Before we get to the interview, a bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you like the show, if you like the website, you can follow along on twitter.com slash thatcipodcast. Another thing you can do is rate us wherever you happen to find us, whatever podcast app you use. And lastly, if you like the podcast, if you like the website, you can support the project on Patreon. Just head to patreon.com slash thatcipodcast. Uh, and if you become a backer, there might be some exclusive content waiting there for you. That's all on to the interview. Uh, normally, I begin by asking who the guest is and what they do. And I did this time, but uh, there were some technical problems and that part of the interview has been lost. So we head in a couple of minutes with this. Let's move on to the current work. Um, it's called The Ideology of Getting Signed. Uh, what, was the, what was the trigger to, to start with this work? Well, as I mentioned to you, I am a musician and I would go to gigs and there's this certain affect that musicians have when they're at shows. Uh, and that affect is a lot of times they think that they're the next best thing and they're just about to get signed and or they've been recently signed and they're about to really hit it big and so i was aware of this affect and i start i was speaking with a colleague of mine a few years ago and he had been a musician in austin and had a lot of experience at south by southwest and so he was describing to me the same affect right all the musicians sh that show up for south by southwest have a chip on their shoulder they're acting like uh they're just about to, to land a deal and um you know everybody should bow down at their altar so I, I was really interested in studying that because everything that i've ever read in my research and everything i've ever talked to people who have had music careers um, is that record contracts are really not good for musicians. They're highly exploitative, and it ends up being the mechanism through which record labels can exploit musicians. So the typical record contract, uh, musicians sign away their copyrights and their right, just all kinds of different rights to their music, their person, um, or their image in exchange for an advance. And then on that advance, they're expected to record and promote and distribute an album uh, or a series of songs. And very few artists ever actually recoup that initial advance. And if they don't recoup the advance, then they don't make any money. So just to, um, I, I have I have a little bit of experience in, in, in the music industry, and I know when I got started, this stuff was a little bit, it was a little bit confusing to me. So the re recouping the advance is this idea that the the label has fronted the money essentially for 
for production of like the recording time, but also for say the the printing printing the the, the product uh, promotion that that kind of stuff. These costs associated with making the 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 album, uh, and and this is spent by the label, but it sh- really should be considered a kind of loan or something to, to the artist because um, until the point that that a certain amount of money has been made back. All, all revenue from sales goes to the label and the artist gets nothing. That's this, this is, this is what recouping is, is making back that initial investment. Correct. And so what I also find interesting about how all that recouping works is uh, let's say, and to break it down into easier terms, if a, if a band gets a $500,000 advance, they're expected to record and everything that you just described on that advance. Um, then once they start selling an album, that's all recoupable on their percentage of the royalties. So if they make an, a dollar off the sale of a record, then that what that means is they have to sell 500,000 copies to recoup that advance. And 500,000 copies is equivalent to gold. The RIAA certified gold is 500,000 units. Correct. And meanwhile, and this is the the trick, um, the label is still getting its cut of each sale. So if the label's making a dollar off the sale of every album, then they actually break even at 250,000 copies of that same scenario. So they're just profiting off of the next 250,000 albums before an artist starts to recoup anything. And of course, um, artists do take a cut of, um, the advance to pay themselves a uh, stipend. But what that usually breaks down to is somewhere between 10 and 20 grand uh, for the band. And if it's, if the breaking, if the, if the breaking points 10 to 20 grand split, let's say four ways uh, in a band, then you're really talking about $5,000 a person to live off of for say a year. Right. So, so what, what are the other elements of, of a record contract for somebody who hasn't ever signed one or hasn't ever looked at one? Um, well, depending on what the contract is today, they're doing 360 or they call them 360 deals. Yep. And in those contracts, uh, the old record contracts used to only involve the recorded product, but now the, uh, the record contracts, they'll give a larger advance, but then the artists have to pay back on um, touring and merchandise and anything to do with their image. Uh, so it, that's 360 degrees. They get, they take a cut of everything that artists would bring in in revenue. Whereas kind of the more conventional older record contracts. Yeah. You might uh, never recoup, but you might also, do well touring or selling merchandise and grateful dead did fantastic at selling merchandise that had nothing to do with their performance 
there have been a lot of reports lately about um, kind of signing frenzies that are going on, especially around um, things like SoundCloud. Mm. So there, there has been a dramatic difference in, in the way that this ideology operates. It used to be where uh, a band would go and or an artist would go and they would tour around, they'd build up a following, they'd sell CDs at their shows or records or tapes. Uh, and then after they've sold so many, they might start talking to uh, artists and repertoire, the A&R folks at the labels, and they would kind of demonstrate to the, the, um, the label that they're serious and they have their own little business that they're moving forward and they're not a risk at all for the label. And then the label would sign them if they thought that they had a pretty good following uh, to move them forward. There's a change that's been happening over the past couple years, and that's got everything to do with social media. So now people are no longer uh, necessarily looking for someone that's even performed. I've been, I've read several articles in Billboard and, the, and Rolling Stone that different labels are doing performance boot camps for their artists because they've never actually performed in front of people. Um, right. So recently I was reading about Juice World and Juice World got a $3 million contract from, I believe it was uh, uh, Interscope. And Interscope signed him and he'd never performed. I, I need to, obviously I'm, I'm too old. I have no idea apparently who, who Juice World is. This is a... He's a vocalist. He's kind of um, an MC and a singer. Okay. He kind of sh- is straddling this line between hip hop and emo rock. Okay. Um, okay. So this is like a, this is an online phenomenon who's been labeled and and needs basically uh, stage classes. Correct. And, and there's a whole bunch of them. I'm not picking on Juice World. This is. This is a no, phenomenon. No, no. <laughs> um, so, so what I think you are seeing with the industry more is since everything is based on streams, they're trying to sign acts who uh, have a large following on social media. So Juice World hit it, and a lot of them are hitting it on SoundCloud. And industry sees, okay, well, you're getting – 100 million streams on SoundCloud. If I sign you, then I already know you can get 100 million streams no matter what. Right. It's like uh, it's like big data meets the the more traditional thing of um, uh, a, a record uh, representative sort of eyeballing crowds and, and things like that. Now, now they can actually look at the numbers. So, yeah, they can look at the numbers and they can be assured that if they spend $3 million on signing Juice World, that he'll recoup that $3 million in no time at all. Mm. Uh, and they'll be cashing in on him. And if people quit paying attention to Juice World, then in um, a couple years, they're, you know, they're six months, they quit recording things for Juice World and they've moved on to cashing in on someone else. And I, I mean, you really see this phenomenon on YouTube too. Um, I always like to think about Psy with Gangnam Style. Mm. And I 
I don't know about you, but I don't know many people that listened to Psy's Gangnam Style and thought, oh, this is my jam. <laughs> they were kind of laughing at this guy. And so it becomes a YouTube viral hit. Um, I've seen that video dozens of times, <laughs> right? And that's how the industry cashes in at this point. No, I, 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 the, the fundamental thing is, um, I guess when I started working on the book, I wanted to know why people sign these contracts. Um, but the more I worked on the book, um, the more research I did, I, I was, became less concerned about the why and more interested in how prevalent this ideology is and kind of where it works, its sites of existence and how it gets uh, amplified to everybody else. Um, so it's really this kind of ubiquitous part of culture at this point that you can sign a record contract and become a celebrity and make a lot of money. So I was, I was more or less looking at where this comes from and how that operates. Um, well, so it's very old. It goes back to the very first record contracts, um, which, I mean, depending on how you want to, to, to categorize that history, um, I think that Ralph Peer, who was signing country acts in um, Appalachia in the United States, really um, pioneered this technique. Um, and so what they were essentially doing was buying up people's rights. And um, as they, they, they bought up those rights, they give them a cut. And then the label itself would own all the rights to the music and the musician will get none. Um, and so that kind of gets amplified and, and through rock and roll, especially early rock and roll through the 70s into the 90s, labels became everything. And the, signing those contracts um, became life. So what kind of interests me a little more is um, the fact that so few artists uh, under the current regime actually recoup mm. their advance. So, you know, it's one thing to say in the 1950s, right. somebody was given uh, $2,000 to record an album. The label gets, got all the rights, end up, you know, uh -huh. making a killing for decades off of that album. The artist got paid nothing for it, but they did get $2,000 <laughs> kind of in that, that initial stage versus right. the kind of more contemporary moment where uh, labels aren't taking away all the rights, but they are saying, well, you don't get anything until we get paid back on our portion uh, or on your portion. Of that. Right. It's like, uh, it's like a different, um, different approach to risk. 
Correct. Than, than, than previously. Is, the, your, is, is your argument that the relationship between label and, and artist is, is, it's not about tinkering around the edges with, you know, sort of more fair contracts. It's there's something inherently um, exploitative or un, unfair. Yes. So actually one chapter of my book is called Copyright Enclosure. And in that chapter, I make the argument that copyright enclosure is kind of the original sin of Mm. uh, the recording industry. And it's in the creation of copyrights that um, the whole system that's in place allows the exploitation of of musicians. And what I do with that is um, if you look at the history of capitalism, Capitalism got started in, uh, or, or got, I don't want to say started, but amplified in England when they started what was called the Land Enclosure Acts. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was not private property in the sense that we have private property. So you had a bunch of serfs living on land in feudal times and serfdom the way it operated was they lived on this land they grew food or you know uh tended to sheep or something and while they didn't own the land they got to keep what they grew and they had to give a portion back to the lord that owned the land Mm -hmm. uh the english copyright or the english land enclosure acts started creating those plots of land as private property. And anybody that did not own the property that they lived on were given one of two options. Either they could get off the property or they could enter into a wage relation um, with the Lord that they, whoever owns the property at that point. Right. So what I'm making the argument is that copyright operates the same way um, for musicians. So musicians, you don't have a a lot of barriers to being able to play music. Musical instruments, unless you go crazy, aren't particularly expensive. They're not prohibitively prohibitively expensive, like say um, some machine in a, plant somewhere uh so they can own their own means of production pretty easily Hmm. uh so what i argue in this chapter is the way that the content industry uh gets the musicians to come work for them because there's no real reason for them to otherwise work for them is through the deployment of copyright and so in order for them to then do something with those copyrights, they feel like they have to go through the label to then uh, record set today, record an album and get that album out to the masses so that they can then profit from it. Right. It's so the, 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 the means of production as far as turning this content into revenue is still prohibitively expensive because it requires all of the the the, the marketing and, and and promotional work that, that a label actually owns correct okay and in a lot of the ways the the musicians um this is where that ideology that dream comes in mm-hmm. they want to be a part of it so they sign into it 
Um, and we're kind of stuck in this, uh, this system where they can't make a living without buying into it. Yeah, and of course, there's. I mean, there's. I mean, one of the outcomes of the people buying into the dream would be kind of queuing behavior. So you 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 have so many people lining up and and saying "pick me, pick me" that it's like a, it's like a buyer's market. Exactly, and I actually have a chapter in the book about competition and how the labels foster competition among the artists and among the surplus amount of uh, creative workers. Um, by by creating that competition among them, they don't have to compete as much with each other at the label level. And there's always somebody willing to step in and do their their bidding. How has um, technology shifted this this dynamic? Because not too long ago, um, it, it 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 arguably really did require you know kind of intensive capital to to make an album you know as a both both as an actual recording and then as a, something of that you know that has 50,000 copies to sell mm-hmm. um has has the power of of labels to to generate profits or, or to be gatekeepers has has it actually been reduced or have, have they managed to basically keep their position i think they've kept it and amplified it hmm. so in um you know, th- that part of this comes out of that my first book I take over. Um, I also wrote a book on or uh, academic article on iTunes and more recently on streaming. Mm. Um, and so what you really see, like there's there are people like Chris Anderson and his book The Long Tail. These yep. are these real techno utopian <laughs> uh, folks who think that the internet magically made it where. Everybody can put their um, creative works out there and be heard by somebody. To, to play devil's advocate, that is technically the case, correct? Oh, absolutely. It's technically the case, but it doesn't mean you're, you're going to get heard. Um, so I don't know about you, but one of the big problems that I have when I open up Spotify is I kind of go, okay, well, I could try to listen to anything and then I sit there for a second and try to think of something and I can't other than the same stuff that I would listen to at home in my CDs. So there, there's this kind of freezing that happens with it. And, and by and large, uh, we, we see a couple shifts that are happening. Number one, if you want to get into uh, Spotify or Apple Music, it helps if you are a top artist with the full support of a label behind you, because when you release something, Spotify and Apple will have you on the front page and um, it's really easy to find your music. And then, so that that's kind of where iTunes came from and, and the way the platform support it. But now with, uh, so many, and when I talk to my students, for instance, uh, so many of them just stream um, these playlists that are generated by either Spotify or Apple. So they're just getting whatever it is that the labels went and told 
uh, Spotify or Apple or Tidal that they want to have played. Is there a pay-to-play model where people can promote the promote their element in the algorithm? Is is it is it direct or is it a more roundabout kind of way? I don't know as far as payola what kind of things are going on, but uh, there there are certain elements. I was just reading yesterday that with TikTok, um, people are labels are going to. Are you familiar with TikTok? Mm. Yeah, I, I guess maybe for those who aren't, you, could you unpack it? Yeah, TikTok is this thing that really teenagers use where they lip sync along to songs and produce their own little videos. And it's this huge phenomenon that's going on. And what labels are increasingly doing is they're going to uh, these people that are in the top 100 on TikTok and giving them $1,000 to record a video of them on TikTok. And then what that does is that ends up, uh, even if, you know, if somebody's getting a lot of streams on TikTok, then that'll translate into the algorithm to streams in other places. And it's all interconnected on what's um, playing. Yeah, and I have, I, I don't remember the numbers now, but I have seen studies showing that the long tail is still very, like it's still very long and flat. Um, and right. and the, 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 the body is still very tall, actually. Um, yeah. And to, to get back to that, I mean, if you want to promote an independent artist on something like Spotify, how do they get heard? The, the more music that's available, the more right. promotion becomes important. Because you need something to filter out the right. noise. Yeah, and I, I guess the other thing is that local markets sort of don't exist anymore, which means the winner takes all effect is, is is magnified. Correct, and we see that in news, for instance, um, like something people over the past decade have talked a lot about is how newspapers have gone away, and now we're reading less diverse content. At the same time that people argue that um, people are getting their news from more and more places, well, it actually turns out people are getting their news from fewer and fewer places. Hmm. The largest sites on the internet uh, for news are sites like CNN, New York Times, BBC, uh, Fox. Like the, These are the things more and more people are reading where you used to just get all your news from your local paper. Some people are saying the solution is to just is, is the DIY model, which is somebody putting there. I mean, I, it, it is not that difficult to simply put a, a band on Spotify. There's always been a push for this DIY model. Uh, and for instance, when you hit alternative rock in the 1990s, Everything at that time was DIY. Well, those DIY labels are now um, affiliated with the major labels, and you know there's no difference there. Um, but again, if you're if you're creating DIY music and releasing it on the internet, then your crowd can only be so big, and maybe you're not um, looking for all that much. I mean, my wife every time I make these kind of arguments, she's a big fan of Ani DeFranco. And Ani DeFranco had a started an independent label. Uh, I think it's Righteous Babe Records. Um, she's been 
touring for years. She's doing all right for herself, right? How can this uh, be replicated can always be a question. But at the end of the day, if you're doing music DIY, uh, it might be hard to earn a living doing it that way. Again, it's hard to earn a living if you're on a major contract. Um, but there's th these kind of differences. What I think needs to happen is I think that we actually need a completely new model for how musicians are compensated. Um, and so there, there have been people that write about different models. Um, I can't think of his first name. I think it's Dean Baker uh, wrote a piece. He's a uh, progressive economist and wrote a piece that, say, in the United States, uh, what we could do is have, say, a $15 tax on every person in the country. And that $15, you get to determine who gets it. And you can kind of put your tax money into somebody's pocket um, for music, or you can have it go into kind of a, a general fund that can then be distributed equally to artists that fit particular criteria. This is kind of a arts bait or a public based arts funding model. Um, what I think needs to happen is I think at the very basic level, Musicians need to get paid like all other workers. So if you go to a record label, they're going to have a janitor that's cleaning up the place. And that janitor gets paid a salary for cleaning. Uh, the administrative assistant that works the front desk gets paid for working at the front desk. Everybody at the label gets paid, except the musicians who are the ones that actually create the product. And instead, they get these advanced contracts. Instead of giving them contracts, just say, well, as long as you're working for us and you're, you're doing what we ask you to do, then you get paid X as a salary. Uh, and I think that that would completely change the whole um, industry and formulas. The problem is that the ideology of getting signed, the, the ideology of copyright is so strong that people then say, yeah, but if I produce an album and it, I sell 10 million copies of it, then I want a cut of that, right? And so that, since that's the kind of idea, it's like, you know, yeah, but there's a chance I could get incredibly wealthy if, I, if we had it a different way. Um, and so that's the kind of tension. But again, most people don't get that. So it would actually be a benefit to most recording artists. It's much much simpler than the the fifteen dollar per person kind of slush fund. It's it, you're just suggesting artists as employees as opposed to kind of uh, like venture capitalists who are out there buying tickets and, and and seeing you know seeing if they strike it rich. Right. So you know if you, if you sign a label sign with a label you sign a labor contract that says you get paid say a hundred thousand dollars a year and on that hundred thousand dollars a year you're expected to work. You know, would anybody else on a salary works 40 to 60 hours a week? And as long as you're working that 40 to 60 hours a week, you're getting your $100,000. 
because of the things I, I described, right? The, the how strong this ideology of copyright is that I own these things; these are my property rights. Right. That when I talk to musicians, I don't think that that's something that a lot of people are uh, ready or willing to give up because of the chance that they might strike it big. Right. Um, and and you know, in American politics, you see this with people when you start talking about like a wealth tax, right? Like this idea that, yeah, yeah well, I'm, I might be wealthy one day. So that might be <laughs> me. That's making $10 million a year, even though right now I'm only making $20,000 a year. It could be me. So if it were me, I would hate to be paying that extra tax money. Which is a very strange thing to be afraid of, that, that you could be a fully employed musician who is so popular that you could be a millionaire, but instead you're just, you know, somebody who owns their own home. Right. <laughs> That's a funny way to put it. Yeah. So um, your book mentions, um, I did see, I think is, is a chapter you brought up earlier about sort of talent contests. And in the, the, the world that I came from, which was very sort of niche and, 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 and more of the, the rock kind of thing, um, you see this like battle of the bands thing, mm, which mm-hmm. usually anyone who's been in a band for over a year, like just, it just stays, you know, very far away from, uh, but could you, could you explain how the kind of, um, the, the competition model works? Well, so in that chapter, uh, which I just finished writing, um, yesterday really thinks about competition as an ethos of capitalism and the way we're trained from a very young age to think that in the creative industries, everything is competition. So the way I kind of look at it is if you are trying to get a job as an accountant at some accounting firm or anywhere, uh, you go in, you have an interview, You don't know about anybody else that interviewed for the job, probably. And when you get the job, you you think of it as you earned the job. And the creative industries, that's completely flipped on its head. And everything is won. Right? You win a gig. So you have to audition. It's public. You know who else is there. You might even audition right in front, front of them. Um or have to sit in a room where each person's called in to go do it. And you can hear it from the other room, how that person's performing. Um, So it it really becomes, it's this singer versus this singer, this drummer versus this drummer. You've got this actor versus that actor. Um, So everything ends up being driven by competition. And with musicians, it's, from the second people start playing music. Uh, I don't know about you, but I played in school band. And in school band, you are required Mm. to audition for chairs. And everybody knows who's first chair, second chair, third chair, fourth chair, et cetera. And that's part of the competition. In the United States, the irony here is we have um, a law called FERPA, And excuse me for not remembering what FERPA stands for, but it's an education law. Uh, Professors are are held to it. We can't share records of students. Mm. I can't post my students' grades on my door. 
with their names on it. Um, but in in music and in theater, everybody knows who got the position. They, you might as well slap a grade right on it. And that's what's ex- accepted. So the competition then turns into um, high school band competitions or marching band competitions. And um, in the United States every year in springtime, People go on band trips where they do the big companies called Fiesta Val. Um, and for Fiesta Val, there's like 10 bands that show up at this city. They pay dues to compete and they win trophies. Um, and so competition is, is a big part of it. We have um, one thing that really interests me is uh, the International Fiddlers Convention that happens in Galax, Virginia every year it's the middle of nowhere but i've been there um and you go there to become the best be be crowned the best fiddler right i mean like th- this is everywhere and so one of the things i write about is actually the battle of the bands and people show up at the battle of the bands specifically to get something out of it and oftentimes it's it's also to get noticed by record labels the hope that somebody's there in the audience that can do something for them. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, everybody that's ever mm-hmm. played in a band has probably played in a battle <laughs> of the bands. You don't really get much out of it. Um, and just like anything else, it's entirely subjective. I remember in my research, I went to see one um, battle of the bands and the, it, was, it was a university battle of the battle of the bands. The best band that was there didn't win because the band that brought the most people, um, they, it was, it was pseudo democracy where the people that are there get to vote since the people that were there came there to vote for them, then they won. And it was their first performance and they were rather terrible. And the university had made it so the winner of that Battle of the Bands got to perform at the, the Spring Music Festival that they host on campus. And there was a lot of controversy among the student union that put it on because... How much of this this competitive element do you think is sort of... Um, it's I mean, it is clearly something that artists have bought into and, and, um, and perpetuate. And um, how much of it do you think is sort of inherent um, or at least... Um, something that, that that won't exactly disappear because a lot of artists, you know, like like this this idea of um, being recognized as a significant player in the field. You know, uh, is is this something that you think is is basically unhealthy and it's it's really not something we should encourage, or is it more nuanced? You know, I, I think that's a a bigger question than I have the capacity to answer um, because part of what I wonder with competition is has to do with patriarchy and we live in a patriarchy so it's often hard hard to tell is competition a product of patriarchy or is competition something larger and more inherent in human beings i mean just by framing it that way you can tell that i think that uh, a lot of it has to do with patriarchy uh the fact that we are in a male-led society uh, that takes on masculine norms as the dominant order. 
Um, okay, so what? It's it, you're definitely working on a more philosophical level than this, but you are also a working musician. So if you did have advice for musicians today, um, what is it? Uh, is it the case that labels are always um, kind of a drag on their career? I mean, at the end of the day, I think it is what people want to get out of their their uh, music careers. If you want to be Beyonce, the only way to be Beyonce is by signing a record contract. Um, if you just want to earn a living and you want to do that through playing music, then um, there might be better ways to do it. So I'm actually, I started a, a website, it's called musicdetour.com and it's a nonprofit uh, music archive that I host at my university, the University of Texas at Arlington. And people can, uh, if they own the rights to their music, they sign a non-exclusive rights agreement, which just says they own their rights. We own nothing. And if they want their music taken down at any time, they can take it down. And it's rethinking about what the value of recorded music is. So instead of thinking about trying to sell music, you could think about it as a promotional tool to get people into your show. Um, which is what a lot of people have been talking about ever since uh, or in the wake of Napster. How do we get people on the show? Uh, so if you were to put on your wizard cap, uh, what, 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 how do you see the music uh, industry um, functioning in, in, in 10 years or so? Do, do you think uh, things will change? Is, the, is the, the label's dominance crumbling? Is it weakening? Is it strengthening? Uh, how will things look in 10 years? And, and what would you sort of realistically hope that, they, hope that they look like? Well, I mean, I'd be a fool to think I know what it's going to look like in 10 years because if you told me 10 years ago that it was going to look like it does now, um, I'd be shocked. I guess what I see is this increased reliance on streaming. I see people no longer buying music at all. I mean, I, I feel like a bit of a dinosaur because I, every time when a, an artist that I like puts out a new album, I go buy it on CD and listen to it in my car. As soon as I buy a new car, I probably won't have a CD player anymore. So I'm, I'm, I'm running into some problems. Um, and so if we look back to look forward, one reason why I think it might be very similar to what the way it is today is there's always been this, um, concept called the, the, they used to call it the CD replacement cycle. I call it the album replacement cycle. It's right where you owned an album on vinyl. And then when. Uh, it came out on 8-track. You had to go buy the 8-track to be able to hear it on the 8-track. And then cassette. And then CD. But then once with the CD, this is kind of where they ran into a problem. How do you keep people buying them? Because now they can just rip them onto their computer. Well, what we've hit at this point is people have bought and rebought in all those different manners. But under streaming, you pay $10 a month and you get access to anything. Well, you also have to keep paying that $10 a month if you want to continue to stream music. 
or listen to the ad mm. paid one. Um, so it's just it's mm. really what I call unending consumption. We just keep um, paying for music again and again, even though we've already paid for it. So if all mm. I do, I was listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers on the way to work. If all I do is listen to Red Hot Chili Peppers on Spotify and I pay $120 a year, then I've paid way more than I ever would have paid to listen to them if I would have just bought the CDs. So I don't know how that will change in, in 10 years. I have a feeling that it will be very similar. And I think where we have change that's going on is more in the performance side. Um, and that goes everything from if these festivals are getting bigger and bigger. You've got, um, I just saw, what was it? Whitney Houston's going to have a, a hologram tour going on. Um, so you're going to have more of those kind of things. Um, a lot of people, I forget who it was. There was some EDM artist who did a performance through Fortnite. Yeah, I was going to say Marshmallow. It is Marshmallow. Uh, so, right, so you've got these new avenues that are coming up that kind of change more on the performance side than on the recording side. What would you sort of hope is the realistic change? It seems like, um, I mean, is, is, the, is Creative Commons, you know, part of what, what you're promoting? Um, I, I think Creative Commons is a, certainly a direction that we need to go. Um, do I don't know that we're going to go there. Mm. Um, I noticed the Recording Industry Association of America is trying to um, redo what's called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act here in the United States, um, which was impl implemented internationally through the World International or the World Intellectual Property Organization back in the 90s. Um, they're trying to revisit these things to kind of crack down on what they see as uh, their enemy, the technology industry. Um, and the question always remains, will the artists, will the public be included at the copyright negotiation table? Will uh, things become m more public and more open, like uh, the commons? Or are they going to find, figure out new ways to monetize and clamp down every little um, idea that's out there? Endless consumption. Endless consumption. <laughs> that's pretty grim stuff. Well, I, you know, the good thing about uh, prophecy is we can come back in 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 2029 and uh, and take a look. Maybe we'll all be. Um, We'll all be laughing about that crazy thing called copyright that used to exist. <laughs> One could hope. What is next? Uh, like, I, I guess the book is next. So when is this coming out and where can people get it? Um, well, I'm hoping to be finished writing it next month. Um, and I would say it's probably a year mm -hmm. from publication. So we've got some time on that. Um, and where can people find you online? Where can they find your projects? 
Um, they can find me uh, on my UTA profile. So if you just look up David Arditi, A-R-D-I-T-I, uh, and, and search for University of Texas at Arlington with it, you'll find my uh, profile with all my publications. I've got musicdetour.com, which um, is that local music archive that I run. 